Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. Please listen to episode 000, an introduction for the full backstory about this podcast series. Today, we end our first season with Mark's and my personal musical hero, Frank Zappa. At the time of this interview in 1990, Zappa was 50 years old. In the interview, Frank talks about how just waving the American flag does not spread democracy, why he is not a fan of Rolling Stone magazine's coverage of him, the non-trauma of turning 50, and surprisingly, how he feels he is not a virtuoso. As I mentioned, the Zappa interview concludes season one of the Tapes Archive podcast. Please let us know if you'd like to hear a season two. If you'd like to support the show, please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. There, we post other content and information not available on the podcast. If you'd like to read the transcripts for any of our episodes, please head over to our website at thetapesarchive.com. We'll jump into the interview after a quick word from our sponsors. The Tapes Archive is proud to be sponsored by the true crime documentary, Dead Man's Line. You've got a hundred armed officers around here trying to get a shot at me. I dared him to shoot me. I didn't go down there to be a buffoon. I went down there for vengeance. And by God, I'll have vengeance. In 1977, Tony Karitsis kidnapped a mortgage broker and held him captive for three days. For the first time ever, the media was able to cover the event live. To some, Tony was a hero. To others, he was a crazed thug. Dead Man's Line. The true story of Tony Karitsis. This award-winning film is available exclusively on Amazon Prime. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. Hey, that uh, It's actually kind of nice for a change. Yeah, I haven't been there for a while. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was one thing I was going to ask you about. You ever coming back? Well, uh, not likely. I'm not touring anymore, so. But I still have fond memories of that one building on the fairgrounds that says, Swine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about bootlegs for a while. Um, have you uh, have you seen a lot of bootlegs uh, of your stuff? Uh, somebody recently sent me a book called A Guide to the Alternative Recordings of Frank Zappa. There are over 400 titles listed in it. Oh man, 400. That's right. 25 years, I've made over 50 albums, so like eight times as many bootlegs as real albums that I've done. I don't think anybody else has been subjected to that kind of bootleg scrutiny. Yeah. And uh, so I, I take it you're looking at this and figuring that other people are making a lot of money, that you're kind of a cottage industry for a lot of people. Well, I would say that uh, I probably put a lot of other people's kids through college. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, they sent them to college. Other than the idea that obviously they're making uh, money off you, are there other problems that you have with bootlegs? Well, if you spend a lot of time uh, producing an album and trying you know, producing a real album, trying to get the sound right, get the performance right, and uh, slave over that, and then somebody comes along with a, a bootleg piece of shit, and uh, it seems to some people it doesn't make any difference whether you worked hard on it or it's the result of somebody with a cassette machine in the back of the room. Mm -hmm. Somebody's buying these things. Right. So, yeah, 
I have a problem with that. Well, um, obviously, you're a lot more generous uh, than a lot of other artists in terms of putting out uh, a lot of product for people to buy. But uh, you don't see any um, reason that, that, I mean, can you, could you think of yourself as a fan uh, and wanting more than the artist put out uh, to buy these bootlegs? Uh, I can understand what the fans' motivation is, but whether or not they get satisfied at the point where they spend the money for the bootleg is the question, because I think a lot of the bootlegs are just ripping them off. The sound quality is so bad. And uh, some of them have uh, tried to make themselves look like official recordings, like you know, releasing them on an ICA label and you know, putting sort of misleading information on the packages to make it look like I actually had something to do with it. Why aren't you cleaning the sound up on uh, on these bootlegs? Well, we did to a certain extent. We oh. Most of the stuff was stolen back from the vinyl source. We spent quite a bit of time uh, chopping out the record clicks with a digital editing system, and uh, they've been EQ'd a little bit. But the basic idea was to steal it all back, covers and all, and sell it for less. So what do you think about uh, bands like the Grateful Dead who basically encourage bootlegging? Um, well, what they encourage is uh, self-taping. Right. I don't know whether they encourage somebody else to uh, put their uh, performance on vinyl or on CD and then sell it. No, I guess I guess you're probably right. That's the difference. I mean, they put up a, a section in their concerts where uh, of a guy comes in there with a cassette machine and sure, you know, record here. That's different than saying, yeah, Mr. Entrepreneur out there in the weeds someplace, make your own uh, fake Grateful Dead album and sell it and collect the royalties. That's another story altogether. I don't think the Grateful Dead wants you to do that. No, no, you're right. Um, have you ever, have you heard uh, many of the other uh, bootlegs besides these uh, 10? I haven't even listened to these 10. Oh, okay. And I didn't even select them. They were done. That was done by a guy who works at Rhino, who's an expert on this kind of stuff. Uh, on to other things. Uh, tell me about Why Not, Inc. Uh, I haven't really been doing too much with Why Not for the last year, but uh, I'm getting ready to make another trip to Eastern Europe. I've been invited by the mayor of Budapest to come there on the 30th of June. They're having this big celebration because that's the day the last Russian soldier leaves Hungary. <laughs> so at that point, I hope to meet a number of Hungarian businessmen and government officials and get some idea what kind of things they're interested in doing and see if I can help out by uh, helping businessmen find out who to talk to and what's wanted or what's needed in a different place. Okay, so will you be doing much business or are you more uh, a link between business and the, the people over there? Uh, more of a switchboard kind of a function. Uh -huh. Uh, why, why did you want to do this? I think it needs to be done. Uh -huh. I think if you believe that democracy is a good idea and you want to see it uh, spring up all over the world, and if you think that a uh, free market economy is a good idea and you want to see that spring up all over the world, I think you have to do more than uh, just wave a flag at it. Yeah. 
Uh, and you don't think that our, our government would uh, have taken on such a, a duty? Well, I think that our government should have. It yeah. should be built into our foreign policy. The fact is, we've spent God knows how many trillions since the Cold War began fighting communism, okay? Yeah. It collapses under its own weight right before your very eyes. And what do we do? Yeah. You remember what Bush's response was when the Berlin Wall came down? Kind of like a ho-hum. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something that, that smells bad here. If, if what they've said all along about the dangers of communism and how evil it is and how undesirable it is and um, how uh, people suffer under this system uh, and when when there's an opportunity to help a country move in another direction and uh, the U.S. government doesn't step right in to help make it work, I think that's a mistake. And it belies all the other rhetoric that we've been listening to since uh, the end of World War II. Do you have any theories on why the government has been slow, or not even slow to act, but uh, inactive? Uh, well, I think there are a couple of different reasons. One, because the whole Cold War was a joke. Mm-hmm. Two, the rhetoric never really squared with reality in terms of what uh, the United States government has been telling the U.S. population. And another reason is I don't know whether or not we can really afford it. You, uh, I would say, are probably, along with uh, the dead and, and Todd Rundgren, one of the artists that are, are really revered and loved deeply by their fans. Do you think about that much? Well, yeah, sure, especially when you get the, you know, we get wonderful letters. And what, is, what are people talking about? Of satisfaction that you've had a positive influence in somebody's life. Um, in general, what, like, what, what kinds of influences have you had on people? Have they told you? Well, a lot of the letters that we get um, have to do with the fact that just because I stood up for what I believed in and uh, didn't turn into a, a commercial act and just kept. Uh, being myself, that it gave other people courage to do the same thing in their lives, and that makes me feel good. Does it make you at all nervous that uh, people put so much faith in uh, in you? No, it doesn't make me nervous. I don't don't expect that I'm ever going to let it down. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like, oh, I'm, I'm trembling on the edge of suddenly going commercial and everybody will go, oh, he let us down. I mean, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. No, I didn't, didn't think that. But it just seems like it's a huge uh, amount of responsibility for somebody to take on. Well, I, I didn't get into it in order to take on that responsibility. It's just something that seemed to develop. But, uh, you know, I do respect the, the position that I've been placed in. Just through the uh, the imagination or perception of the people who like what I do, and uh, I have no intention or desire to let them down. I hope to always be able to continue to stand up for what I believe in and keep doing it. In the past, well, I guess it's it's about thirty years now that you've been doing this. Almost, you've gone from uh, only twenty five. No, oh, okay, twenty five years. Um, you've gone from being, you know, kind of outlawish in a way to uh, sort of, uh, I guess, respectable, for lack of a better word. I mean, be, between being on Johnny Carson and testifying before Congress, uh, what does that say? 
Well, first of all, I think your uh, evaluation is not correct. Okay. Because I doubt whether I'm respectable, but there are certain people who respect me, and there's a difference there. I'd say that the, the mainstream press uh, does not find me respectable at all, and will do everything they can to make sure that I never become that way. One of the reasons why it's difficult for me to trust anything that I read in the press, because I happen to think I am respectable and always have been. I'm a member of the mainstream press, I suppose, and I find you respectable. But then again, I didn't find you, you know, all that outlandish when other people were, you know, freaking out over what you were doing. So. Yeah, but your, your attitude may be somewhat different than the guy who owns the newspaper you work for. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the point. <laughs> I would imagine so. It's made from the top down, not from the street up. What's really happening in this country never really gets reported because of the filtration system and uh, and all it takes is one phone call from one of the big guys to another one of the big guys and certain important stories disappear and other stories of no importance become major world news. I've spent the last uh, well, five or six years being pretty deeply involved in that since I went to Washington and testified and it's got a whiff of the... Weren't you treated, uh, the, you know, I mean, weren't you given a, an incredible amount of credence going before Congress from the news media? Not really, because here's what happened. Uh, uh, I testified, well, I was on a stand maybe 40 minutes, and I read my prepared statement for about 10 minutes and then answered questions. And out of all that, the only thing that CNN ran on the air was the, uh, uh, when Slade Gordon, this apoplectic Republican from Washington State, who I guess was the designated hitman on the team, um, see, under the Senate rules, you can't speak unless spoken to, and unless the guy asks you a question, you can't open your mouth. So when it was his term, turn to ask a question, instead of asking a question, he made a speech, which basically was, Mr. Zappa, you don't know anything about the First Amendment. And that's, that's all he said, and that's all CNN ran. Oh. You see what I mean? Yeah. Now, what about the uh, TV networks, the New York Times, things like that? Was the coverage more balanced? Um... I'm not sure that it was. I'll tell you one place where it was really very, very unbalanced was in Rolling Stone, because prior to the Senate hearings, Rolling Stone, which is basically financed by the record industry, took a pro-PMRC stance. I don't know whether you know that part of uh, recent American history. Before the Senate hearings occurred, they had uh, uh, an article that was kind of pro-PMRC, and the reason was that the record companies had always intended to cave in on this, because they were trying to protect a piece of legislation called the blank tape tax. And so the editorial spin, as far as uh, Rolling Stone went, when they first covered the issue of record ratings, was basically on the side of the PMRC, which is a very shocking thing to find in a rock and roll publication of any description. And so after the uh, Senate hearings occurred, I was given short shrift in the reportage of the Senate hearing, and the major uh, positive puffery in the piece was uh, given to Danny Goldstein, who wasn't even there. And uh, Who is that? I don't know who that is. Well, he, uh, 
uh, he's a guy who uh, at that time was running an outfit called Gold Mountain Records and had made some uh, anti-censorship uh, uh, statements and eventually became uh, the head of the ACLU in Southern California. He wasn't then, but he was like a record industry guy. Well, I don't know. That seems that seems uh, strange, but you know, I, I don't. Well, all you got to do is go back and, and look at the uh, the coverage, and you'll see that I'm not not making this up. No, no. I, I, the other thing that was very odd about what Rolling Stone did with it, in there, in that second article, the second major article, which came out after the Senate hearings. They had uh, like kind of a Rolling Stone editorial point of view, which was enclosed in a box, inserted into the article. And basically what they had in the box was gleaned from my testimony with no credit given to me for the source of uh, the stuff. It was just a weird thing. Uh, are you in a position where you could call Rolling Stone and find out why that happened? I don't even care because you know I, my basic speculation is that uh, Rolling Stone is the, an extension of the personality of the guy who runs it. And uh, I, although I've never met this man, I don't think he likes me very much <laughs> based on what they've, uh, how they've covered me and the way they've treated me over the years. So. Knowing that all publications live or die by the uh, revenue offered by the advertisers, if your publication is basically um, owing its existence to major record manufacturers, I think that there has to be a certain amount of uh, input in, into the editorial policy from those guys. All right. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, one other question in this uh, vein, and that is uh, when you were on The Tonight Show, I thought that you got a, a pretty tremendous reception from the audience. Uh, they seemed to be in support of what you were saying. Well, the, that's the discrepancy um, that has always intrigued me, because the way in which I'm treated in so-called mainstream press is always to regard me as uh, a lunatic. I'm the convenient lunatic whenever they want to have... Uh, uh, hold up an example of what you shouldn't be as an American. They'll often point to me. But if I uh, get in front of a, what's, let's say an audience like a Johnny Carson audience, which is not very avant-garde, would you say? <laughs> I would agree with that. Okay. Uh, they know me and they like me and they treat me like I'm I'm okay, like I'm a human being. And this is a this kind of reception is at odds with the uh, official line that is usually maintained by all of the mainstream press. The only reason I can uh, see that this continues is uh, it's an editorial policy, which is decided for political reasons. On to other things. Any thoughts on turning 50? 
Well, I've already turned 50. Yeah, I, understand. I realize that. But uh, what, uh, you know, it just seems to be a kind of a threshold. You know, you turned 50, Bob Dylan turned 50, and I wonder if you go through any trauma or... Uh, I didn't. No? Okay. Uh, go through any trauma when I turn 20, when I turn 30, when I turn 40. You know, I hope I get to turn 60. Yeah. Uh, so not exactly a milestone in your life. No. Over the 25 years, have you done anything that uh, you'd like to take back? Uh, no, not really. Okay. Nothing in the lyrics or anything you've said or anything you've done? Nothing. Well, there's certain things I might have said in a different way. You know, mm -hmm. uh, but basically... There it is. Can you give me an idea what that might be? Well, I think I probably would have uh, handled the song Jewish Princess in a different way. Mm -hmm. Not that I wouldn't have written it, but based on all the uproar that came afterwards, uh, I think I might have uh, maybe made it stronger. <laughs> That's another one of those uh, kind of crazy things that, that blew up over really nothing. Well, yes. <laughs> Your typical mountain out of a molehill. They demanded that I apologize for doing it, and I told them no. I guess you know, there's not too many Americans who will stand up to an organization like that and say no. I mean, if you look at the way politicians cave in whenever the uh, that lobby gets a hold of them, they quake in their boots. Yeah. Yeah, well, Alan Dershowitz was on the radio last night, and he was saying, somebody called, uh, I think it was on Larry King, and somebody called and said, uh, would you think about running for the Senate in Massachusetts? And he said, he said, politicians are not free to say what they want, and I like to say what I want, so. Well, I, I respect run. Alan Dershowitz. I always like the people that he represents, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Alan Dershowitz is a Talmudic scholar. That's what he was before he uh, became uh, a lawyer. And I think that he's got a lot of depth, and uh, his, um, appreciation for the Constitution is really quite fundamental and I, I'm always interested in what he has to say. I think that he does uh, say what's on his mind. I don't always agree with it, but uh, you know, this, this is a guy with a brain and I'm glad that uh, he gets a chance to be on television because there are too few guys with brains any place on television. Do you think you're intimidating? To some people, sure. I take it that, uh, is that good? Um, no, it's just a fact. Yeah. Okay. I wondered if that works to your advantage or your disadvantage. It depends on the situation. I mean, I'm really not uh, one of these guys that thinks about power lunch or whether you have a psych psychological advantage over somebody because they don't deal in that world. I mean, I, I do what I do. I am what I am. You like it, fine. You don't, that's fine, too. The people who are usually intimidated by me, um, if they can ever get over it, they wind up liking me. Well, see, most people don't know me. Right. That's, that is also a fact, a statistical fact. Yeah. Well. And, uh, what they do know about me is a product of what they've either read about me or what they've heard about me or, or something. So since very little of that has to do with reality, it's 
possible that uh, any uh, intimidating aspect of my personality is a figment of their imagination and not something that I projected. I, I think you're right. There, you're probably uh, as misunderstood uh, as anybody because of selected things that are, are said or written about you. I remember, uh, I think it was Dave Barry, the humor columnist for the Miami Herald, uh, wrote something about your appearance before Congress and uh, said that, well, I think he said, well, in general, you know, he agreed with what you had to say. He said you were also a guy who wrote a, who once uh, wrote a song about uh, having sex with a rutabaga. Well, that's not even accurate. Yeah, I, I think he was joking, but I... I <laughs> but, um, you know, sounds like a good idea for a song, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the book, you uh, said there are several reasons why, why my music has never really been explained in the press. For one thing, people don't care how it works or why it works. And uh, I care, so can you explain it? Well, I think that if you're going to rely on the book, that there's probably a better explanation, a more detailed explanation in there. And uh, rather than have me uh, answer it off the cuff, you know, use the precise terminology that's in the book. Okay. That would be the best way to do it. You also say in the book, I'm not a virtuoso guitar player, and that you still have to look at the neck to see uh, what you're playing, uh, which comes as something of a surprise to, uh, at least to me, because uh, I always thought of you as a, you know, as, as one of the mo more amazing guitar players. Um, you know, well, the thing that's amazing about what I play is that I managed to get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's uh, a lot of wiggling your fingers and hoping that you get it right involved in there. And uh, uh, I really, I'm not a virtuoso, but I can't read music, and uh, I don't practice, and I can't play anything. Virtuosos can play anything. I can. I can only play what I imagine. <laughs> and if there's something interesting about what I play, it has more to do with what I've imagined than. So, uh, how does that work? You 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 hear it in your in your head, or you're thinking about the, the sound that you'd like to create, and then you go about trying to create it. Right. Well, it's situational, uh -huh. and it's also uh, kind of Ouija board like. You know, if you have to have an optimum um, environment in order to play a really good solo. Because it's a, it's a collective um, expression, you, you are at the mercy of the rhythm section. If they are uh, sensitive and in tune with what you're doing and have the desire to make what you're doing sound good, then you can produce good music. If they're just scrumbling through their day, um, then no matter what you play, it's going to come out half-assed. Because it doesn't mesh with the rhythm section. Okay. If I let me give you a, a song, if I can, and if you can tell me how how it Black Napkins is one that I'm real interested in. How did how did that come about? Well, Black Napkins was a a, a piece that I wrote, and that's a, a planned piece of music. The solo itself is an improvisation, but you know it's a, a, one of the first tunes that I wrote for the guitar. It's a guitar solo instrumental. That's that's one of those songs where when I hear it, you know, it just it, it shakes you up because the, the playing is uh, is like nothing else. You know, I've never heard guitar played that way, and I guess and it, it, I think it's really great. But I also well, you I know, played that song every night on that tour practically. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some nights it was better than the recording, and some nights it was, was not. Mm -hmm. uh, that was. Um, 
the smallest band that I ever had on the road, I think. Pretty compact, just uh, bass, drums, keyboard, uh, sax, and me. And so um, maybe during that tour, I had to put a little bit more effort into what I was playing because uh, there, there wasn't anything else. Okay. Um, how are we doing time-wise? Because I've got a bunch more than stuff I want to ask. And well, I you can know. go in until somebody says, uh, Frank, you got to get out of here. I do have another appointment that I have to go to, but they haven't buzzed me yet. So. Okay. Um, let, let me ask you about the, some songs, projects, and lyrics, and you can tell me whatever. By the way, thank, I'm glad to hear that about Black Nappings. I always like that song, too. But yeah. I'll t want an anecdote about that? Yeah, sure. Um, we were playing in New Jersey, and this is, I guess, the late 70s, and uh, we're in this small theater, and a woman, uh, I guess she was in her 40s, uh, asked to come backstage and talk with me, and so the guards let her in, and she was really very nice, and she showed me a picture of her son. Uh, he had just died. He wanted to be buried in my t-shirt, and he wanted to have black napkins played at his funeral. Wow. And so she wanted to meet me. <laughs> that, that'll shake you up before you go back on stage. Yeah. Um, did you accommodate her? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, she... Not to, uh, I'd give her a t-shirt, I mean, basically. So. Oh, he, he had the t-shirt. Oh, he had the t-shirt, I see. I thought he wanted your no, t-shirt. he didn't come by to get a t-shirt. Oh, okay. He wanted to tell me that, you know, the impact that that song uh, had had on her son. Boy. Okay, so this, I've just been given the notice, and this is the last question. Oh, boy. Okay, well, then my last question is, uh, is music better or worse than when you started? And I don't mean your music, I mean music in general. Uh, well, if you're talking about that which, uh, if you're talking about the known musical universe, in other words, what you can hear on the radio and what they show you on MTV, yeah. it's way worse. But that doesn't mean that there aren't good things out there that we don't know about. It's just that the broadcasters are not letting it, letting us find out about it. Because it's hard for me to believe that all of a sudden, with the advent of MTV, all good songs cease to be written, and all good bands cease to be formed. I just don't think that nature works that way. In some place, there's there are good musicians and good composers and and good tunes all over this country and other countries but we just don't know about them because the people who determine what you get to see and hear have no taste let me squeeze one other one if i can you're you've been a great uh, facilitator you know an incredible number of amazing players have been in your bands over the years um, do you are, are they people that you generally find? Do you hold open auditions? How do you how do you get the the people who have come through your band? Well, um, so I'm not doing it anymore. That's for sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we used to hold open auditions. Yeah. How did you, and Lil George? How did he come to you? Well, I knew him when he had a band uh, called. Uh, the factory and I produced two tunes for him in 1965 or 66 <clears throat> and uh, 
he was a musician in the LA scene, so I knew him before he got into the band. He, he once, uh, I interviewed him just before he died, and he said that uh, that he had come to you at one point when uh, he was uh, and said, uh, you know, I've written some songs, and you basically said to him, "Great, you want you want to write your own songs, start your own band." Is that true? No, that's not true. Yeah. Actually, I helped him get his contract at Warner Brothers. I don't oh. know what kind of drugs he was using at the end there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that a lot of people who were in that uh, early band. Uh, uh, took it as a positive career move to say negative things about me in whatever interviews they can do. But I think that, you know it could be researched and discovered that uh, Little Feet wouldn't have had a contract at Warner Brothers if it hadn't been for me helping him get it. And uh, I knew him that he wrote, he wrote songs. And uh, everybody who writes songs should have a chance to record their own songs. Why should he do it as a, a member of a, another band? He had his own band before he was in my band. Why shouldn't he form another one and go do his own thing? Because at that time, the original Mothers of Invention had uh, broken up. The, the, that was uh, around 69. So what was he going to do? Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, well, I really appreciate your time, and I'm glad. Uh, I never thought I'd have a chance to talk to you, so I'm, I'm really glad that I did. And uh, I hope I get a chance some other time, because there are a bunch more things I wanted to ask you. Okay, well, the future lies ahead. Okay. Most all said that. Okay. Thanks a lot, for her. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.